Coming up, another big show at the Emerging Cricket Pod as we chat 50 over World Cup formats, T20 World Cup qualifier cancellations, and we catch up once again with Andy Moles. But it's even bigger if you're an Emerging Cricket patron where we've released an extended version of this week's show. You can become a patron of Emerging Cricket from as little as two US dollars a month. To sign up, log on to patreon.com slash cricket. Tim's also out of quarantine in Vanuatu, so enjoy the atmos and ambience of the tropical rain falling on the roof of his new digs. Hello and welcome to another Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on SportFM in Perth. I'm Daniel Beswick and as always, I'm joined by Tim Culler and Nick Skinner. Tim, another new backdrop for you. You're out and about, out of quarantine, into the wild, as they say. How's everything going over there in Vanuatu? Look, I don't want to do a Mel Gibson-like scream of freedom. I've I've already done that. I just don't want to do it on the the podcast. But uh, I am very happy to, to be out as we record this on... Thursday night. Um, I've been out for two nights, been given the grand tour. I'm still a little bit like Miss Daisy at the moment. I'm being <laughs> driven around, just sitting in the, the passenger seat, just having a look around. So I think I'll probably take on Vanuatu's roads over the, the, the weekend or maybe maybe early next week. Um, Who's Morgan Freeman in this analogy? <laughs> Jamal Vera. <laughs> so while balancing being HR officer, uh, paralegal, national team player. He's also had to drive me around. So got out on, geez, I can't even remember what day. It feels like so long ago already on, on, <laughs> on Tuesday afternoon. And again, it was great to be taken around to Independence Park where uh, one of the officers is the VCG, the famous VCG to, to walk out with where the blast was held to see the facilities there. And I'll tell you what, to see it in the flesh, to see the hybrid wicket, I was gobsmacked at how, how good, it looks and if you didn't know better you would think it's a normal turf wicket that the groundsman has just left a little bit of extra grass on because in my head I thought it the synthetic the extra long synthetic grass underneath would be green because you know that's the color of every cricket pitch every syntho you've ever played on but it's a, a really light straw color uh, you know that looks like a cricket wicket's grass once it's been rolled and rolled into the clay so it just looks like a consistent wicket that has sort of lengths of grass on it but it's just like wow i don't think you know i know we've talked about it in the past and about the revolutionary capabilities of what this could mean for associate nations who are hoping to to replicate turf wickets but don't have the resources to have full-time staff curating squares and that's the other advantage as well there's there's one pitch you don't have to worry about boundaries moving on you know different sides of the square and having to have bigger fields so really impressive but um by the time the, the pod goes out i'll have uh, i've met with, with with everybody on on friday morning so really looking forward to, to see all the, all the faces there but I'd, I'd look i couldn't feel more welcomed and everyone will be happy that I, i've been sweating consistently for, for basically for two days <laughs> so normal normal service has been been resumed you know but i would sweat if i was in an ice bar anyway so look it's, it's nothing new but it's just come out of the, the stormy and rainy season so that the humidity's dropped off but i'm very happy to be starting my stint here rather than when poor jeremy bray got here you know two months ago in the thick of it straight from denmark <laughs> no we're in denmark yeah denmark yeah. denmark in yeah. february to, to, to 
to Vanuatu. And whilst he had 24 hours to sleep in Auckland Airport in between, the Brisbane to Vanuatu gap is just um, is a little bit more palatable, shall we say. Uh, sleeping in airports is... Uh that's that's fun, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we we should have a prize for the Nick Skinner, you know, Jeddah Award Jedda for award. worst <laughs> worst airports that that anyone's had to sleep in. But um, yeah, it's just it's great, you know, having that two weeks was actually really good. I think to have the buffer between changing jobs and uh, so much hustle and bustle at the back end of my time in Brisbane with. You know, as we, 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 we've heard my, my stories of delays to flights and visas and, and, and everything. I had that time to, to do a bit of planning. So I knew what I was going to be doing once I uh, hit the ground and I feel a lot more prepared. So I'm not advocating to have permanent, you know, two weeks of quarantine for everybody starting new jobs. But it was nice to use it productively and, and, and positively and give myself a bit of a bit of a break between the well, my, my two lives, really, from my old life to my new one. Well, I'm, I'm just glad to hear that uh, Jamal Vera is looking after you, Tim. The, the wicketkeeper and the spin bowler is one of the most important relationships in cricket. So that's, uh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I've had news of moving overseas. But again, it's, it's Thursday and it's someone's birthday. Mm. Daniel Beswick. 28 today, is it? Yeah. Happy birthday. How depressing is that? Two more to the big dirty 30. Oh my... uh, Cool, you want to swap? (laughs) You can be 39 and you can have... You you can live in this body, okay? And then I'll come back and then I'm I'm happy to be your... Oh, 28. Wow. Although the thing is, I feel like I fell asleep at 23 and the last five years have gone so fast. I I just want to go back. Um... Yeah, no, uh, I'm trying to make the most of it. Awkwardly have an evening shift to deal with. And I know people work on their birthdays. That's, you know, a very normal thing for for people to do. But when you're kind of dreading the idea of going to work in the evening instead of, you know, completing your work during the day and then kind of celebrating in the evening, it's a slightly different dynamic. But I've been trying to make the most of today. Pretty glad to be sitting here chatting cricket with you guys in in all fairness. I don't know what I'd be doing otherwise. Uh, Nick Skinner, a little further north of me. What's been happening in the in the world of you? Well, speaking of work, yeah, I've had a lot of uh, a lot of shifts on. This is my my only day off for a, a couple of weeks at the moment, so uh, that's that's going hard. Nose to the grindstone, but um, still finding time to do a little bit of cricket. Watched a little bit last night. Got the podcast ready. Um, so yeah, just plugging away. But in terms of working hard, I have to give one shout out before we do get going today. Rod Lyle in the last week or two has been absolutely pumping out content of all sorts, match reports, rants and whatever. And he just had his first COVID jab as well. So wishing him all the best. He's been yeah keeping an eye on everything going on in, in Dutch cricket with the Dutch traveling to, to Ireland at the moment was also around doing... Uh, the Nepal Tri-Series that was going on as well. And probably a good chance to, to stick to Europe and talk about their qualifiers that have been called off the, the sub-regionals before the, the regional finals. And there's definitely winners and losers out of all of this. And, and Finland are probably, you know, the most disappointed having two of the competitions that they were hosting gone. It was a good opportunity for, for them to put on an event in Finland. Uh, there was also a leg in Belgium, uh, Nick, as, as you pointed out. But We've got four teams, you know, moving into a European final here. Jersey, Italy, Denmark, and, and Germany. It's an interesting one. There's a couple of big losers in all of this. I feel like Guernsey is one particular 
team that, that, that really misses out on an opportunity. But there's a couple of other stories, Nick. It's a shame that we haven't got that cricket, but unfortunately, it's the compromises that we still have to make at this point with, with the world being the way it is. Yeah, I mean, the the, the pandemic is still going. Um, we, we can't pretend that it's not. And I mean, obviously, it's it's a lot worse in some parts of the world than others. But looking at Europe and the ICC statement and, and basically the fact is that they just couldn't hold it safely with the government approval and I mean they've just run out of time like we were saying a few weeks ago you know the time frame is tight because we've got the um, comprehensive qualification pathway that they need to go through all the steps to have the sub-regionals and then the regional finals and then the global final and then finally the the uh, <laughs> the pre-tournament uh, a group stage qualifiers for the main event um, so th- there's a lot of qualification to happen and and obviously the, the time's just run out um, I think probably Belgium would be feeling the most put out about this. I mean, I know you, you mentioned Finland and they've done a lot of good work recently in terms of their, their local coverage and um, you know, their, their online stuff especially, but, but Belgium have been significantly improving their team on the field and working on their facilities as well. So I think they'll probably be yeah re- really upset about not having the chance to host and I think they would have been a, a good shout of, of making it through. Oh, no, bang on, I, I, I agree. You know, After seeing their performance in Luxembourg to sweep that series against Luxembourg and the Czech Republic, uh, with Shreya Butt, uh, the skipper at the top of the order, he's someone that could have really carried them through at least the, the, the sub-regionals to, to get to that final in Spain. So definitely agree with you that out of all of those countries, despite the ones that, you know, in terms of hosting and all the hard work that have been done. But yeah, it's, it's one of those situations, isn't it? You know, everyone's trying to do the best they can and you need enough runway to, you know, to be able to organise flights, accommodation, and minimum or so maximum numbers of, of quarantine days covered, it's the uncertainty is what's killing it really. And I think I feel for all the players out there, you know, full member nations where players are on full time contracts is, is is one thing, and whether they're playing cricket or not, they're, they're going to be there and training, and hopefully with some international cricket as well. But at the moment, as an associate cricketer, if you're training and training and training, it's like, well, you know, what are we what are we training for? You know, how how, how long? So in some ways, it's for them the band aid's been ripped off, and they know what's happening, and hopefully the final in Europe can happen but we've also got all the other regions as well you know from a Vanuatu point of view you know EAP are supposed to have our qualifier in in Japan so from that similar perspective as well just hoping things start to change but you know (laughs) it's the only the only certain thing at the moment is the is the uncertainty really and I think that uh, you couldn't really well we all probably hoped even this time last year, well, not even this time last year, as you got to the back end of 2020, that the 21 would hopefully bring some respite from the situation and would be kind of seeing light at the end of the tunnel. But look at what's happening in South Asia at the moment. And the friends in India and, and Nepal, you know, really playing cricket games is the last thing that so many people in the world are, are thinking about. So we can only hope that that cricket can start up as, as soon as it can. But, yeah, I just, just feel for everyone try, trying to get these things organised and, and for those players that continue to train for an event soon, hopefully. Yeah, a couple of nations off the top of my head. We've got Sweden, who, under new coach John T. Rhodes, didn't get a chance to see if you know any market changes had, um, had been made in, in Sweden. But also, you know, the likes of... Serbia, who, you know, we understand that their uh, recruitment ha- has taken a, a turn uh, for the better, looking for, for players who qualify 
under the Serbian flag and yeah, teams like Hungary and, and Romania, I think, Nick, you made a point of in the production notes before we started. Just a couple of different storylines. And I think, too, with with international teams and World Cup qualifying, and yes, we only had the qualifiers for, well, potentially a World Cup at the end of the year, you know, not so long ago. Sometimes the stars have to align for a country to have a really good World Cup campaign and for that opportunity to be taken away for a couple of countries. And, you know, players aren't getting any younger just having, you know, the perfect mix at the perfect time can be what you need to, to send your country into the stratosphere in international cricket. And we know that rate rankings aren't perfect. It's an opportunity for, for everyone to, you know, to test themselves against the best and ultimately, you know, beat the best. Unfortunately, we have to use the rankings, you know, the way that they are to determine who goes through because we've run out of road. It's the compromise that we have to make. But just quickly, Nick, the rankings are flawed because, you know, they're based... A lot of matches sometimes have very little context. Just official T20 internationals that just so happen to count towards rankings. It is very difficult for the ICC to put the rankings together. But in turn, that also means that they're, they're probably lopsided in ways that are out of the control of the associate members looking to qualify for these global events. Yeah, I mean, the rankings, there's a couple of different issues with them. And one, one of them is that a few people who are, are much better at maths than I am uh, have, have questioned the actual formula that's used to determine that. And I mean, as I said, I, I'm not, uh, my, my numbers aren't good enough to uh, to think about that. But the, the more kind of obvious issue is that the teams play other teams from other regions so little that it's, it's hard to really get a gauge for where someone is across the different region. You know, where, where is, say, Romania compared to the Philippines. We don't know because because they never play each other and they rarely play other teams from that region. So it, it, it's it's hard to say that, you know, Team A is this many ranking places ahead of Team B, even though they've never played each other. So I think leaving aside the maths issues, what could be better to do is try and just get more of these tournaments happening where teams play each other across regions. Yeah, I guess the thing for me is that we may say the rankings are flawed from a, a global basis, but at least in the context of these regional events is that you'd like to think that the regional rankings, you know, albeit, as you said, you know, the, the algorithm within it and whether it's loaded the right way in terms of recent games because of how infrequently all of these teams play, but at least it's it's going to have some semblance of, of a correct ranking with, within a region, which I guess at the moment is the important thing because we're backfilling sub-regionals or, or potentially on, on, on ranking purposes. But yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what, what the answer is. I think it's a, perhaps it's a Bertus de Jong question that, <laughs> uh, that we, you know, for the man that has spent days kind of building various rating models and what-ifs as to to what the answer could be because you know we've talked about Nepal as an example of coming out of sub-regional qualifiers and appearing at 11 on the on the the rankings the T20Is when they hadn't beaten teams five six places below them uh, in the last couple of years to know how a team could get that high so I'm not trying to pick on on Nepal here just using it as an example but as you said there are mathematicians <laughs> working on these that are smarter than us. Now, I think we have to address an elephant 
in the World Cup room, <laughs> gentlemen. What does a World Cup room look like? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's a very small room. <laughs> <laughs> full, of, full of trophies that Australia have won and South Africa have not, sorry. Um, there's talk. There has been nothing official, but there's been a lot of talk from a lot of big places, which suggests that this is very much on the agenda. Uh, the return of the 14-team World Cup for 2027 and potentially beyond. Now, on the surface, on the face of it, I think we were all happier about all of this. But then, you know, when you scale it back and think about it, 12 years after the 14-team format World Cup, we're finally coming back to it. So it's a basic. It's basically a long time to go two steps backwards, only to go two steps forward again. It is a positive, and I'm sure you boys will agree, more teams than what are currently at the World Cup is a good thing, but there are issues of formats. There's been plenty of chat in regards to that. Tim, when you saw this, the story and the, and the rumors of a 14-team World Cup returning, what did you feel in all of that? Because there's a lot of conflictions here. It's better than what we have, but it's not as good as what we could have. I, I think you've basically answered the question for me there. It, there are many emotions. On, on a bit of paper, last World Cup, 10 teams... This will have 14 teams. It's a 40% increase. But as you put, you know, that only gets us back to where we were in 2015. And not to <laughs> to spend too much time on it, but that's when we should have been talking about increasing the numbers of teams and we wouldn't be in this situation of getting out of the mire that has been a 10-team World Cup. And there's still another one to come in 2023 that you could still change as well. So it's good, and we're getting back in the, in the right direction. Um, not that there's been anything even as, as official of what these conversations have, have been or what have, or what have leaked, basically, because nothing has officially came, come out, is that we're also looking at increasing the numbers of teams in, in the, the T20 World Cups. Um, well, we've already seen the numbers have, have come back for the women's events, but I think on, on the men's side as well. So, yeah, look... We've got to be happy that we're getting back to where we should be. But looking at the, the 14 format with two groups of seven, like even three groups of five into super sixes or you know, into something that has a lot more sort of front-ended, um, front-end any one, one-sided games. And I don't mean with associates. In the, I, don't, I mean, because a team may come in and have a shocker like South Africa did in England and they don't deserve to go longer and then move into exciting higher jeopardy um, whether it's super sixes, whether it's knockouts, whether however it's structured, whereas in 2015 perhaps that 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 group stage could have been a little bit shorter. So, but as they say about, I wouldn't call this a gift horse because there's been a lot of a lot of hard work in the background for people to advocate for the larger World Cups. I'm not going to discount how great this is because that's four more teams in in the the pinnacle as it still stands men's global event. Yeah, look, I, I think. The actual, the specific format, that's um, maybe like a 20 or 30% issue and the number of teams is like a 70 or 80% issue in terms of the impact on, on global cricket and you know, having a clever format that prioritizes exciting games and, and all of that sort of stuff is, that's good, that's nice, but in terms of global development, just having the teams that are able to get there, that's that, you know, that carrot for the players and, and for the... Um, for the boards to be able to sell sponsorship to local companies, all all of that, uh, I think is a lot more important in in terms of growing the game, and and so this is progress, and it it should be welcomed as such. Um, I, I think we um, we can thank Ireland, according to some of the reporting. Ireland have been pushing for it quite a lot as a measure to you know improve uh, global 
cricket and and the development of the game. So good for them and and good for them to you know sticking to their guns on this topic. I think, yeah, it, it reminds me of um, when I don't know if you remember this, but uh, when when Cadbury changed their chocolate blocks from. 250 grams to 200 grams and then a couple of years later they they had a promotion where they had these special extra big packs of 220 grams and they were saying now now with more chocolate <laughs> and it's like well is it actually more you've you still got less than you had before and you know we we had 16 teams in, in 2007 and then 20 years later in 2027 we're going to have 14 teams apparently and they they're selling that as a as an improvement so i, I don't know Plenty to deliberate on for those making the decisions. And as always, we'll be keeping you updated on all of that around the world at Emerging Cricket. And of course, for more news in the game, you can head over to EmergingCricket.com. But coming up here on the podcast, part two of our chat with Andy Moles. Hi guys, I'm Chris Pierce, the head coach of the Czech Cricket Academy. the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Rod Lyle, one of the contributors for me, see, has asked uh, which were or which have been the, the most satisfying teams that you've coached, and, and perhaps which have been the least satisfying to coach, and, and why? Um, most challenging would probably be Kenya to a certain degree because the, the players, when I arrived, just got to the semi-final of the, of the World Cup, and they got there because other countries refused to go to Zimbabwe, uh, if you remember. And they had one good result where they beat Sri Lanka. Otherwise, they'd have finished seventh or eighth. And when I got there, they they generally thought they were the fourth best team in the world. <laughs> so I said to them, well, okay, well, let's do a fitness test. And of course, the fitness test didn't go well. So I said, right, we're going to get rid of our fitness. Now, I got into coaching originally through Bob Woolmer. And Bob Woolmer at this stage was the ICC development officer for the associates. And he contacted me because he coached me when I played at Warwickshire and he got me into coaching and he said to me, Andy, I want you to come and do a coaching. I'd, I'd done five years with Free State, operating with Anthony Cronier, Alan Donald, Nicky Bruyere and, and countless other international coaches. And he said, I want you to come and coach Kenya. They need to understand camaraderie, working for each other and uh, the understanding of team spirit, but also get fitter uh, and play together as a team. So that's that's what I did. And, and it was difficult. I mean, there was... I felt very sorry for the players, but I didn't agree about the actions that went about it. It's before the World Cup. They sat down with the board and said, right, whatever prize money we win, then that's ours. And the board thinking, obviously, you're going to finish seventh or eighth at best. If you get a little bit of money, it'll be just twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. Okay, we agree. So they signed it up. Well, lo and behold, they finished fourth. So they got... Two or three hundred thousand dollars from the ICC for prize money. You know? Well, of course, the board said, No, 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 <laughs> no, you're not having all that money. And they said, well, Yes, we are. You said, So they used to go on strike. And I was there. We have um, India A and Pakistan A came to play in um, Kenya. The night before, they told me we're not playing tomorrow. I said, What do you mean you're not playing? No, we're going on strike because they still owe us that money we want. So that was a big, hard, difficult task to. to I, I respected the players and what they were right that they should get this money because they, the deal had been signed. But we weren't getting enough cricket anyway. And now they were going to strike when, when people were coming to play against them. So that, that was difficult. And in fact, when we played against Scotland in the I Cup, we went with the under-19 team because the senior players all refused to go. I, I think on the field, you know, a lot of, 
people as fans, as viewers, make judgment on, on a lot of things. You know, cricket is a game of opinions. But just how hard is it to, to man manage, you know, a group of players like that off the field? I'm, I'm guessing, you know, I'm assuming there's a lot of intangibles, a lot of things off the field that, you know, directly correlate to players or a team's ability on the field as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult it's, uh, to try and get that balance right because obviously you are the boss, you are the, you are the man in charge. But you can't keep going around with 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 a whip, you know, saying this is what I'm going to do, do it, get it shouting, because you just lose respect. And there are times when when it has to be done, and you know, I've learned all the jobs that I've had is I review myself at the end of them, and I generally believe I'm a much better man manager now than what I was when I had Kenya and and, and, other, and other things. But it's all about recognizing the situation, building before uh, before it arrives, and I think. Over time, I've got to a position where I can see that now. Where perhaps 15, 20 years ago, I didn't, I didn't see the trouble coming over the hill until 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 it hit me. Uh, where now, through experience, I can recognise issues coming, and I can recognise how to put them out and how to confront them. And I think that that's only experience teaches you that. So those issues that uh, that came over the hill of of Kenyan cricket, as it were, um, you know, you were appointed as you said just after the dream run in two thousand and three. But after that, it's been basically all bad news ever since. Um, you know, what went wrong? You know, and and you know, looking back, what could or should have been done by the ICC to capitalise on the success of of that golden generation? Yeah, I think there's a initially a problem between the Asians and the Africans in the country. The, the, the administrators were, were Asian-based in the, in the country and the majority of the players were Africans. And that had, a, unfortunately, a bit of a banging of heads. But you know, Steve Ticolo was, was, was a wonderful player and a good captain. And him and his brother, his brother, I think, became CEO. I think the biggest thing is they didn't grow their facilities. They got one or two nice clubs there, but the clubs were run by the Asian people and the difficulty was getting the Africans to go and freely we, we need permission all, all the time to get hold of the, the, the clubs want, they were private clubs and they wanted it for their members so that was always an issue that we tried to build an academy um, Madassa was working there for a while Madassa Nazar and he was working at the academy and he one day had to buy diesel on his way to the net practice because they didn't have enough money to put diesel in every roller to roll the nets for for the um, the academy to practice, so it was always nitty gritty. They had, we had some quality. Mark Lane was my assistant, who probably was better known for coaching the England ladies team. They won the World Cup and the Ashes against Australia. Obviously, um, he was my assistant. We had some quality coaches there, and I think they needed to. They missed the opportunity to grow the coaches. We needed a, we needed the coaches to get stronger to help the players get better. Um, I think that there's a lot of players that wanted to play, but I think they lost the opportunity or missed the opportunity to upskill a group of coaches that can help them move forward. And I think part of that is because they fell out with the players in the World Cup, they were the players that would become coaches that would have brought the next uh, group of players on. But because of they fell out, there's no way they could work together. Well, I've seen some uh, arguments and and you know articles making the case that cricket in Kenya, obviously they had some some fantastic players, but the the roots of the game were quite shallow. So, I guess what do you make of that idea in in terms of Kenyan cricket around the time you were there? Yeah, very much. It was a there was a, a group of players that were sort of better than the rest. It wasn't it wasn't a you know, like a pyramid with a with a strong base. There was a group of players. 
And the next group of players, funnily enough, were a group of Asian players. The under-19s, who were quite strong, were predominantly Asian. So I think integration could have been handled a little bit better. And I think it all came down to the mistrust. There was no trust between the different elements in the country and the cricketing uh, arena. So therefore, through that mistrust, the, the, the game couldn't grow. And I mean, I don't know how much of this you saw as coach, but you know there was obviously a lot of problems with match fixing and other sort of corruption. Um, what was that like? You know, trying to operate in that environment and and potentially having that going on around you. Well, I mean, I never I never suspected it as it was, when it first happened. I thought myself and Mark Lang, oh, you know, Morrison Dunbay was the um, the guilty party. And we said, did you see anything? No, I didn't see anything. We just couldn't. It was because something new. You know, it's very, it's very deflating afterwards to find out. You know, the, when you're working so hard and you're putting yourself out, you know, you've travelled to another country, living in in conditions that are probably, you know, certainly not as good as what you've left behind. You work with the players and you live with the players and you try and you know get to know them and, and drive them and and uh, cajole them to get better and help them perform. To find out that one or two of um, are selling selling the team down there, not me down the river, but Selling that you know all the hard work is for nothing, because it, it, you know it's it's been undone. It's very 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 saddening. <sighs> yeah, it's it, it's just a, a plight on our game that unfortunately we've seen come to fruition a little too many times. And I think you know we we were on a run there with with shows here, Tim. I'll I'll probably sort of bring you in here because you've kind of seen it under your uh, responsibilities when you're at at Hong Kong. And there were multiple weeks there where we brought up perpetrators in in multiple parts of the world and it's just not really something that that's going away anytime soon yeah as annie was talking then you know that the, the conditions thing in hong kong I, I would say was was better that's probably probably one difference to me but yeah it's you know you try not to personalize it too much because it's not a an affront against against you it's it's against the game and it's against their teammates and it's i don't know i guess it's just incomprehensible to so many of us that this could happen and and you would do that to your, to your teammates in the game you know I think we've talked about this before and and how it's seen by perpetrators who then choose to talk in the years after or not so long after and seeing that the the game or the country owed it to them because they'd got the country to, to where they'd been and they hadn't been been compensated to what they believe they should but I guess it's one of those things that they'll tell themselves whatever they need to 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 do this it's just beyond disappointing but that was as a ceo i think as a coach andy it must have been even even worse when these are guys that you've you've been in the trenches with you know you've, you've been out in the middle of, of hot fields and, and and working together and then they've been working against you yeah i just say it, it yeah they work against me but it's working as their own team and their own country you know as we said you know the associates mm. that work so hard and, and the game here or there make as you know make a massive difference in these tournaments and if you find out that uh you know, one or two players have, have, have sort of not given their best or even worse, have, um, have deliberately done something to to the detriment to the team. That That is sickening and that, that that's the bit that really hurts. Well, this hopefully we've uh, we've answered some of David Age's questions about Kenyan cricket. I'm just wondering, you know, looking to the future, where do you see the Kenyan team going now? Obviously, they've, they've fallen well out of the top tier of um, associate cricket and they're in the the challenge league at the moment do, do you see any uh, cause for hope or do you think they're, they're going to be there for a while I think they'll be there for a while I haven't followed them over the last year or so but it comes down to to restart the need to get 
And it comes, you know, it's, it's that chicken next to trade. To get to grow the game, they need money from the ICC. To, to get money from the ICC, they need to move up the leagues. But they mm. can't move up the league because they probably need to improve their practice facilities. They probably need to improve their coaches. And they probably need to uh, get hold of a whole group of new players, which will take them, you know, from the age of 16 to 19, five or six years to get them to the national side. But in the meantime, they need, they need money to grow that team to get them to where they want to be in five years' time. So they, it's the old thing. All these associates, they look for local sponsors and things like that. But the local sponsors will only get involved if the team is winning because they want to be associated mm. with a winning team. But if they're not winning, then that then becomes an issue as well. So it's um, basically as Aziz in, in, in uh, Uzbekistan comes down to finding people who are in love with the game to try and support them. And you're almost reliant on kind of just hoping that you have a golden period where, you know, every star aligns and you just so happen to have 11, you know, really good cricketers, you know, and their results you're kind of hoping down the line lead to the better funding that does hopefully gradually, you know, be reinvested into into the grassroots structure. You're almost relying on on just having a, a golden generation of players in a, in a specific time period. Yeah, and that does happen. I mean, you, you look... A lot of the associates, especially if you drop down a level, you look at school school cricket, very often you do get a group of four or five or six players that just come through a generation together. And that's what Kenya probably need, is to have a group of five or six players just suddenly emerge. And then the thing is, they need to be identified that, that there's a group there, then they need to get the work into them and get them playing against. If they're 17, 18, 19, they need to be playing adult cricket in Kenya to expose them to that harder edge of cricket so the hardest thing is, is talent identification they need to recognise those players and then do their best to nurture them to, so they can be the best they possibly can as quick as they can well kind of a multi a multifaceted question but as, as a coach and, and you know someone involved in in selections what are the the key things that you look for in a player and who are some of the, the players that you've worked with over over your time that have stood out above all others i think the main main thing has got to be temperament and their willingness to work at their game and, and practice hard uh, it's, it's difficult to kane williamson has obviously got to, got to be a standout i mean i came across him i used to go across to uh, taranga where he used to live he was a 16 year old schoolboy and he he was in the province that I worked at, Northern Districts. And I used to go across in the winter in the, on Saturday mornings and spend a couple of hours with him um, because he was such highly known in the area to be such a great player or a great prospect. And it was evident straight away, what, what a, firstly, what a talented cricket he was. And secondly, what a human being he was. He's, I mean, many people have said the way he's handled himself in the World Cup and things like that. He's just a tremendous human being. But he works and works and works. He would he would be a standout. Now on the other other end of the um, of the spectrum, when you talk about people who behave themselves, would be Jesse Ryder. Jesse Ryder was a remarkably talented cricketer for New Zealand, but unfortunately he had drinking issues, and and you know it's all been well in the press about his off field. Uh, but, but he used to win games. Where he was. Heavily built, but he could bowl at 140 clicks off, off just an ambling run-up. He could win the games left-handed and at backward points or gully. He was in, no, he was his natural ability was amazing. So you know, you got two players there. One you would say would be an angel, and the other one would be, would be the devil. You know, the, the other guy really <laughs> uh, got it, got himself into trouble. But as a cricketer, Jesse Ryder was enormously talented. 
other players from there. Um, there's one or two in this uh, Gulbers in the opening batter for Afghanistan at the moment, who's in the under 19s with me. I see he's he's played three or four series of T20 cricket against Ireland and, and Bangladesh. He's got player of the series three times, I think, out of the, out of the four or five series he's played. He he just now he does play in a highlights package. He doesn't leave many balls alone. But in T20 cricket, I think he he will come through and he will get an opportunity. And I think he'll do well even in the IPL in, in the next year or two. Um, when I first started coaching, Butter Dipanar, remember him, used to play for South Africa. Mm. He was a young 19-year-old guy. He was su- su- such a fitness guy. He used to go and run 10 kilometres in the morning before playing a game of cricket. Okay, he was only 19, 20 years old. And I, I tried to go, no, you save your energy. No, but coach, I need to get rid of some of this energy before we play. I mean, he was, he was another wonderful, <laughs> wonderfully talented figure. Um, you know, there, there's so many. Good, but, what, but the people that, that I remember that for the right reasons are the, are the ones that made the best of what ability they did have. It wasn't always necessarily the, the superstars, who go, but the ones that worked hard and make, made competitions. They, for me, will always be the stars of the side, not the big name players. Uh, well, our fingers are crossed. Uh, there is a T20 World Cup that is supposed to be played at, at the end of the year. Unfortunately, you know, things going on at the moment that might be moved around. And as someone who, who's watched a lot of emerging and associate cricket, we do see six qualifiers for the event this year taking part in the, the first round of the T20 World Cup. Uh, Oman, Scotland, the Netherlands, PNG, Namibia and Ireland. I'm not 100% sure how much of their cricket you've watched in, in your time with you focusing on, on other ventures, of course. But looking at those teams, any of the teams they're standing out to you as as potential challenges, not only to, to get through that first round, but to then challenge against some of the big boys later on this year? Well, I did watch a little bit of the qualifying tournament in the UAE. It was probably two years ago now. Um, yeah. So I watched it with interest as the sides come through. I think Scotland will do well in Ireland, obviously. Um, I think the beauty with the shorter format of the game, it suits the, the, the giant killers. You know, the longer the game, the harder it is to beat them because you, there's nowhere to hide. But the shorter format of the game, if you have a couple of batters that come off and take a great catch and, and the bowlers have a good day, don't bowl so many extras even, then suddenly you can be competitive. And the other thing is when you play against some of the bigger sides, they are nervous because they, you know, they added sort of, um, they don't want to lose against the minnows. So I think that um, with it being the T20 competition, the odds against them is still, is still against them, obviously. But I think with it being a short format of the game, they need to make sure, I'm sure all the coaches will be working on it, they need to make sure they've got two or three match winners with, with the bat and they need to work on their changes of paces, uh, especially if it's going to be in India. Although, as you say, what's going on at the moment, I doubt whether it will go ahead. But they need to be understanding, watching the IPL, making sure that they learn on what surfaces they could be playing on, what bowlers have been successful, field placings and, and that sort of stuff. So I think a lot of the, a lot of homework can be done before the competition. And I think there's every chance that you know one or two of these, these sites could cause a surprise and qualify for the latter round. Have you found it in your coaching that it's almost an advantage that those giants know nowhere near as much about you guys as, as you guys know about them when you do get tested at that next level? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's getting harder now, though, because of the advent of the video recording and, and everything. That, you know, all the, the, the nations, every game that Scotland or Namibia or any of these sides play, other countries will have video because they, it all goes into a central bank. So it's not as easy as it used to be, but still, 
one of the things is that um, the lack of pace on the ball, you know, some of the opening bowls are not as quick as the Australians or the English or, or the West Indies or whatever, but the lack of pace can, can be, especially in India, can be something that they can turn to their advantage. So, again, it's about preparation, understanding what skills they have and not being worried if they don't have the same uh, skills as, as the major sides, but adapting their skills to make them make it difficult as possible for the, the major, you know, the full members to when they play against them. Now, normally we warn our, our guests at the start of the show this question, so we'll, we'll give you a little bit of time to, to think about this, Andy. But if there was one law in the game that you would like to change for any reason, what would it be and why? Oh, dear. Um, I think probably the, the, the hotbed question at the moment is this man-cat situation. Ah, another man-cat. There's a lot of things on... Um, you know, is the batters need to understand that they can't get a flying start. And I've been reading one or two things just recently about the third umpire looks at the line for the bowler, for the bowler bowling no ball, then why can't he look to see if the batter on the very time on the very same video link has left his ground before the ball has been released? So then he can actually call a dead ball and the and the batter can come back. That probably because it seems to be an issue more and more in the game. And I, th- I think that, that that probably needs to be looked at. I think it could be easily erased by the third umpire being being able to call dead ball if the batter leaves his ground too early, just by looking at the same video feed as it does to see whether the bowl is bowled or no ball. I can see Bez twisting in his seat, waiting to uh, to answer there because he thinks. See, I, I would go. I'd make it one short rather than dead balling. You know, I, I, I've come around to that, that to agreeing that 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 needs to be looked at and saying, you know, cool, let the game go. And if you're out of the crease when the, the ball's delivered, then sorry, mate, no different to running one short when you, you you're turning. You you know, and it would change overnight. You would never have to check it again. All of a sudden, it'd be like umpires checking one short. It'd be like you have, have to be be a real mistake wouldn't it that's why you're an administrator you see you i actually agree i think that's a very good point actually quite like the idea of just of calling it one short look you can steal it and you don't even need to name it i think uh, i'll take that as a compliment you know from the guy that's it's called the the, well, the best batter from uh, warwickshire never to play for england and coached more countries than i've been to and then i'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll take that I'm, and the fact that i can i'm now an administrator again you know that that's i'm happy to to, to think of myself in, in that way sorry bez i know that you don't want to change the law bez but are you coming around have we have we convinced you no, there's there's definitely an argument for it. My my stance is just that I think as a non-striker, you could take as much ground as you want, but if you get caught out by the, the bowler running into bowl, then, you know, tough luck, you're out. I think it's a case of just destigmatizing the, the whole idea of it. If you get caught out by the bowler, then, you know, start walking. But, you know, when I think when you're in your follow-through, if you, if you kind of know at a certain point that the bowler is going to be releasing the ball as a delivery, I think as a bat, you could probably get maybe half a step in, but... But yeah, I think, you know, when looking at the example, a lot of the time it's just blatant. You know, there's a guy two steps out of his crease and the bowler hasn't even got into his last delivery stride yet. I think that's where the, the issue is. It's just breaking down this this idea that it's against the spirit of the game when the spirit of the game is just this kind of social construction we've just made up. There's no laws really tying into it. 
Yeah, well, A, Bez, you, you speak like a true batter when you, you're saying these things. But, you know, we had Ngindi coming in with that last ball against, I think it was Ngindi. You've got a guy running in bowling 150 clicks. Do you really want a fast bowler having to make a decision mid-delivery stride whether he's going to stop yeah. and, and take the bowls off? I think when you think about a safety play, a safety point of view, you make it one short. You can leave the law in there that you can still be run out at the bowler's end because that should still be there. But if he's outside of it, he or she, the batter's outside their ground, you know, I think that's it's such a simple solution. The only problem being that when you look at making law changes, it's got to it's got to translate to the the recreational game as well, and that wouldn't be able to happen because an umpire can't be watching the front mm. foot as they should be and where the batter is as well. That's the only problem I see. But if you cut it out in international cricket and kids saw it on TV, you'd then see, I think, the behaviour being built into kids on, on on cricket grounds on the weekend. If they see their heroes behind the crease, then you'd think that behaviour would change as well. I think, And that's one of the biggest things, is, is, is changing that behaviour. And then you, you take out the whole spirit conversation because you've you've ingrained it as part of the laws. But anyway, we've now talked about, about run-outs of the bowlers in for another five minutes. We're so adding time to a, a, a great interview, so I'm not going to talk. We actually have an expert here, and I'm the one doing all the talking. Sorry, Andy, but it's just one of these things that now gets me that there is a solution there, and, and people arguing about you know spirit it's like well you can get it we can get around that and allow the spirit to flourish without having to have this conversation (laughs) thank you (laughs) we should start um putting uh no man cads on the you know on the law change well we should just sort of like have a a policy note on our website saying Mm. this is what emergency cricket thinks (laughs) on a a number of topics you know expansion of the world cup 20 team minimum you know 36 in the t20 world cup and this is what we think for run outs of the bowlers then (laughs) (laughs) well i suppose that's the other million dollars question Andy do you have the perfect cricket world cup format because there's a certain international governing body crying out to find a good one mm. my thought is only it's called the world cup uh, the answer is in is in the title <laughs> so world cup get as many teams in it as possible grow the grain oh you get no argument from us but I think that's <laughs> going to be our tagline for the, the rest of time they should not in my opinion they should be not be cutting sides going there it's all finances it's not it's not about growing the game it's about saving money again you know, surely once every four years or, you know, or every two, it's a T20 and then the 50 overs in the World Cup. Let as many, you know, like football, grow the game, get more countries playing. It's the only way they can they can improve. The players and sides can only get better if they play against better opposition. I don't think anyone needs to add anything to, to that answer. I think that basically encapsulates everything that we kind of stand for here. Yeah, you're speaking to your base here, <laughs> you've, 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 you've got you've got your market covered. You know, you are that's as religious as we go on this podcast, but you are preaching to the choir. The other thing is that I thought about a, year, a few years ago, and it, and it'd be very very incendiary, I know, but perhaps we, you could think about picking aside from. Those associate sides that are not included have one extra side and pick a better than the rest. So imagine, imagine if you, you, you've got your six sides going to the T20 World Cup. It's final. It'll never happen. But then you pick the best side from the other countries from the mm. last tournament. You pick a, a representative side from the, those sides not ma- who didn't make the, um, the side. I think that, that could also be not... It's about helping players play against better players help them get better as well. Well, the, the ICC ran some... Um a couple of games a little while ago now they had they had the associate representative 11 played a couple of games in in the UAE against I think it was against an England development side maybe and I, I thought that was an interesting idea that they could have done a bit more with as a, as a development sort of program exactly you know, the, it takes a little bit of um, 
got to be scared not to not to upset people because you're going to make you're going to make some decisions that are going to put people on you know outside of their comfort zone. And I, that idea may not hold water, but there's got to be some way. We've just got to give people more opportunity to play cricket against better players. Yeah, I love that idea of putting the best of the associates to really put them on a, a platform. I, I think there was a, it was may, maybe even a bit a bit longer ago, Nick, kind of 15 years ago, there might have been like a, a multi-day game. It was like an associate and affiliate 11 against a, a development team. But I, you know, we always have a bit of fun kind of putting together the best, best associate T20 side or long format side from even only one from a country and you come up with teams that I think would give some of the better countries a run for their money you know the talent is there it's just unfortunate that you only see in fits and bursts in in franchise leagues but you don't need much of a spark to get people looking at at, at these countries and you know you could see that what Sandeep has done for Nepal's cricket exposure. You know, you could say that Paris is potentially, I guess, over a longer term, a, a better player. And, I, you know, I'm not trying to play favourites here, but you know, he never had that chance to play on the on the world stage. But look at what Sandeep has, has done for, for Nepal's exposure. So it doesn't doesn't take a lot to, to tip the scale in the direction of, of, of global interest into a into associate country either. But, yeah. No, I'd never thought about that for a combined team. Something, something to think about. Well, Andy Moles, it's been a huge privilege having you on the Emerging Cricket Podcast as someone who's travelled around the world, coaching, selecting, doing all sorts in the associate world and the emerging game. Once again, a massive pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for joining us and uh, keep up the good work wherever you end up. Thank you very much, guys. Good luck for your uh, podcast as well. Big thanks again to Andy Moles for joining us on the show. To keep up with news and events from the game's new world, make sure to follow Emerging Cricket wherever you are on social media and across our listening platforms. For now, on behalf of Tim Cutler, Nick Skinner and myself, Daniel Beswick, we'll see you next week.